That's awesome. Um, it's exciting again, for me to be here and to kind of hear some of the perspectives there. A class like this one, obviously, in only seven weeks, there's a thousand topics we can't discuss. And so for me to just take 15 minutes to kind of hear from each of you a little bit of why you're here and some of the things you're looking for um, kind of helps us keep the, a fluid curriculum and try and use these seven weeks to serve you as best as possible. Um, we're not going to walk through the whole syllabus there because um, I know you can read, um, but I also know that you probably won't read it unless there's a few parts that we do go through. So um, take a look at it with me. Um, I just want to walk through the course objectives. What do I hope that we can accomplish in the next seven weeks? I hope that um, seven weeks from now um, we can accomplish more than what's listed here, but at a bare minimum we're looking for, number one, I'd like you to be able to articulate the mission of the church. Number two, I'd like you to be able to articulate the gospel in less than one minute. Um, I think one of the things we run into is as Christians, you hear the gospel over and over and over, and you hear all these different ways to talk about Jesus, and you kind of, it's almost like you're just, you're going so fast in your mind, you're spinning your tires, say, where do I start? How do I just state this really simply? Um, and so that's one of our goals here. Third, um, we want to, I, I would like for you to understand our society in this historical moment, particularly how technology and secularism are impacting the broader culture. We'll spend a little bit of time on that today, a lot of time on that next Sunday, um, and then kind of start to, to branch off of it from there. Fourth, um, I'd like you to articulate action steps for contextualization and incarnational ministry. And we'll talk about what each of those terms mean. It's not actually that complicated. Um, the ideas can be a little tough, but what we're actually saying there is not. Number five, I want everybody here to grow in empathy for people who hold different beliefs. That's probably the one that if, if there's one we had to pick, that's probably the one that I would zero in on. I hope that seven weeks from now, we have all grown in empathy and beginning to understand why it is that somebody else may hold a different belief. Um, that, that's a hard one to grow in. That's a character one. That's not a knowledge one. Um, but I trust that the Spirit of God will move us in that. Number six, I'd like us to understand the importance of gospel cultural hermeneutics. They say, how do I understand the gospel? And, and talk about that as well as in the midst of the things our culture is doing. How do we do that as well? Um, we'll spend two whole weeks on, uh, on that topic. And then number seven, be able to articulate a comprehensive case for Christianity in less than three minutes. So what I mean is slightly different there is not just the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and rose again the third day according to the scriptures, but actually why is it that you would actually believe like a fairy tale? And sometimes we get into these deep apologetics conferences and well, I can, I can tell you these 27 books I read, but how do you say in like two minutes? Yeah, here's why I think it's true. That can be challenging at times. So that's what I hope that we can gain here. Um, the second page is all books, which if those, those of you who know me are not surprised by that, I do love to read. Um, the only one I want to talk about right now is the required reading. That is Greg Gilbert's book, Who is Jesus? Um, I'm not going to use this week by week going through the class. Okay, I'm not going to do that. It's not like, hey, chapter one is this week, chapter two is the next week. The reason I selected this is, one, it's short, and I know you're all really busy. Um, and sometimes short is the best thing for us. Um, but secondly, as, I, as I've said, the more you're around church and church people, the harder it is to talk about Jesus in simple terms. And Pastor Gilbert does a wonderful job of that. Um, and so what I'd ask you to do is read this by the end of the class. 
March 3rd is our last class. Um, I don't know, it, it's, it's not a difficult read. Okay, I sat down, I read it in one night, it took me about two hours. It's, it's a quick read, it's, it's stories, it's, it's, it's not challenging. Um, the rest are recommended books that I'll address at various points throughout the class. We don't need to look at those right now, so you can turn to page three. You see the class schedule, um, no need for us to talk about that, you can read as well. Course assignments, there are three of them. The first, we already talked about, read Who is Jesus. The second one is at the end of the class, I want you to write me a paper. I'm just throwing it back to the old days, right? Um, are you talking about today's class or the end of the seven-week class? End of the seven weeks. Okay. And it's only one page, and if you look at what's there... Is that a single or double? Yeah, right. Uh, let's, go, uh, let's go Turabian formatting on that and go to the Purdue OWL to find the appropriate citations. Um, but here, here's what I want us to address in the paper. Number one, where do I need to repent of thinking of others as the enemy? That's growing an empathy for those who hold different beliefs. Number two, who's one person who's not a Christian that I can reach with the gospel? Number three, what is that person's biggest obstacle to believing the gospel? Number four, how will I use the material from this class to engage in respectfully yet meaningful dialogue with that person? Number five, how can I assist other Christians to gr in growing to create a less polarizing environment? So as you look at those, they're all simple questions. And there's, there's five questions there. So if you give me about three sentences on each of them, you're pretty close to a page, right? It's not a challenging assignment. Um, but I know this. People who are drawn to Sunday evening educational classes tend to like to sit in a classroom and leave it in a classroom. I don't say that as an offensive means to any of you because you're looking at the guy who has a master's degree in apologetics. Okay, I've sat in the classes and I just know what that trends towards is there's this kind of stuffy intellectualism. What I desperately don't want to happen is this seven-week class to stay in this room. That makes, this, that makes your time here completely wasted. Right, so don't do that. The, the assignment I hope you see is completely driven towards how do I get out the door and go with this? Um, and just to help think through how do I do this, writing those things down. Um, and then the last assignment is this. As we talk through the different recommended readings, Pick one of those books and read it sometime in 2019. Okay, we, we all want to be growing. We all want to be learning. Um, obviously, we can't finish all of that in seven weeks um, or all the books on there. Um, but pick one of them and say, hey, Justin, as you were talking about this book, I thought it looked interesting to me, um, it looked helpful. I'm going I'm to check that out. Um, so tonight, what I hope to accomplish is just twofold. I'm going to frame in what we, do, what we want to do. we still got about an hour to go. Uh, number one, I want to start to frame in the problem of the polarizing world in which we live, um, start to get at some symptoms, and hopefully help us see where we're more of the problem than we want to admit. Um, and then secondly, in some general terms, start framing in the solution. Give ourselves a framework within, we, within, within, with, within which we can work. Um, and then the next six weeks, we can really start to dive in and unpack it. Um, so, what is the problem? Right, that's, that's the first question I said, what's the problem? It's that we live in a polarizing age. And what I mean by polarizing is that people either get angry or they shut down, but they don't discuss. Right, I think we've all experienced that to one degree or another, but we either get angry or we shut down, but we don't discuss. Now the good news, the good news is this is actually not a new problem. It's a very old problem. 
right? And the, the old problem is, is that we, we idolize our tribe and we try to demonize the other tribes because by putting them down, we put ourselves up, right? It's the exact same thing we tell our kids, our elementary school kids. Hey, the reason that they're being a jerk to you is to make themselves look better. Yeah, well, what was true of first graders is also true of adults all over the place. We idolize our tribe, criticize the others, make them look like the devil so that we look better. Um, just think, you know, going way back into the Bible. What did the Pharisee pray? God, thank you. I'm not like that other guy. It's not a new problem, right? Um, you look at Peter in the Galatian church. He's hanging out with people who are different until his old buddies show up. And he's like, oh, I don't have anything to do with them. And Paul confronts him and he says, you've got the wrong gospel. This is a heresy. It was 2,000 years ago, right? There's that old ancient, uh, it was a Chinese proverb, I think, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's the same problem, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Now, technology brings these things to light and it shows us these problems in different ways. But it's a very old problem. It goes right to the, the heart of the human, the human soul right there. And it's basically we're out for our own good. We're out for our own good. And so we remember the good things we do. We remember the good things that, I'll just keep using this term, our tribe does. Whether that's the Republicans or that's the, um, the Christians or whether that's people who embrace Reformed theology or like whatever tribe you want to be with, you remember the good things you do. And you remember all the terrible things that the other people do. Right? I remember... Like, this is, this is telling. In 1995, I was nine years old, and I still remember on the news, when the Colts went to the Steelers for the AFC Championship game, whatever local news station reporting that Steelers fans were urinating on the Colts team fan bus that went out. What are we doing? We're demonizing everything. You need to hate the Steelers, hate the terrible towels, and hate them for urinating on our bus. Like, that's the things that we report. Let's remember the good we do and the bad that somebody else does. Of course, theologically, this is like no surprise, right? Why do you need the second great commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself because you weren't going to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Philippians 2, think of others as more significant than yourself. Galatians 2 says Christ in you means that you have, uh, he, you have died and he now lives in you. Quit thinking about yourself. It's super simple problem when you boil it down to what it is fundamentally, right? Um, and it's something that the politics you guys mentioned several times, right? And across the board politically, you see this happening all the time. And what I'm convinced of is there are some spots where we do this intentionally, but most of the time, most people, Christians, not Christians, conservative, liberal, like, you know, patriots, cults, whatever you want to however you want to divide that up it's totally subconscious and to the other people like oh my gosh how could you be such a jerk and they don't even realize it's happening and we don't realize it's happening to us either so let me let me give you a couple examples to kind of try and illustrate and make that point one of our recommended readings for the book or the class is the book them by senator ben sass from nebraska maybe you've seen uh, him Subtitle is great, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. Um, it's, a, again, a really quick read because um, he he's a storyteller and he's easy to listen to. I would recommend it. Well, I do recommend it. Um, but whatever the case, he tells a story. He was uh, talking in an off-air 
just a conversation, not even an interview with Wolf Blitzer from CNN. And Wolf Blitzer is saying something along the lines of, hey, why are the conservatives so skeptical of the news? Why is Trump, you know, Trump's going fake news, fake news, fake news. Why is this latching on so much? And Senator Sass says, well, you know, in fairness, I think we're all still a little bit uh, hurt by what Candy Crowley did in the 2012 Romney-Obama debate, which if you remember back, that was the one where, right, you're thinking of presidential debates, they're usually won in like a 12-second quick interchange, the one time where it gets off script. Romney is starting to give Obama the business on that one section, and the moderator, Candy Crowley, speaks up and fact-checks Mitt Romney completely beyond the scope of what she's supposed to do and conservatives everywhere are freaking out like the whole thing's rigged cnn is there to get obama okay whatever she wasn't even right in her fact checking she was wrong so senator sass says hey wolf this is why i think you know maybe people are a little a little skeptical here justifiably so right and Wolf Blitzer looks back at him and says, what are you talking about? He had completely forgotten it. It wasn't on his radar. It was, we remember the good, and we forget the bad, and it helped us idolize our tribe and demonize the other one. Right? Um, if you want to look at another example, MSNBC has hired Dan Rather. Right? Conservatives look at that, and they're like, he puts out this false Bush report gets fired from his job, how in the world does he get hired back by any kind of credible news agency? And worse, how does he write a book called What Unites Us? <laughs> right? So on the liberal side, you see it happening in that way. But on the conservative side, it happens the exact same way, sometimes worse. Right? One of my former students at um, Bethesda Christian Schools, when I used to taught over there, posted something on Facebook not so long ago that I saw, and it said this, heaven has a wall a gate, and a strict immigration policy. Hell has open borders. Let that sink in. Now, the issue is not whether the wall is a good idea or not. It's completely beside the point. But look how polarizing the conservative is in this. Hey, if, you're, if you agree with us, you're pretty much like Jesus in heaven. And if you disagree on this political issue, you're pretty much like Satan in hell. Just let that sink in for a second. Like, it happens to everybody, right? Um, R.C. Sproul. Now, if you're in the Reformed theology camp, you know, he's pretty close to being an apostle, right? <laughs> he was asked, just a few years before his death, can an Arminian be a Christian? And he goes, yes, but just barely. <laughs> R.C., I love you, man, but that's not helpful. Either you're a Christian or you're not, but there's other ways to get at saying these things. Yet, even in this class, when I, when I mentioned Dan Rather, I wish you could see from my perspective, brow coming down. I mentioned R.C. saying that, and everybody laughs. Because if he's in your tribe, it's okay, and you give him a pass. And if it's on the other side, it's like, can you believe that? I can't believe those guys. How do they get away with that? Right? Um, we could go on and on, give more and more examples of these kinds of things. Um, in the book, Sass talks about how Sean Hannity endorsed him. There was a point at which um, Hannity criticized something that the Trump administration had done. 
the day after SAS criticized the Trump administration, Sean Hannity came on the air and said that endorsing Ben Sass was the greatest mistake of his professional career and called Ben Sass a useless politician. The conservatives do it just as much as the liberals. It hits all of us because it's a human heart issue. We idolize our tribe and we want to demonize the other one. This is what's contributing to our polarizing world. I haven't really gotten much yet to the technology part of how that exacerbates it, except for it broadcasts it to millions or billions. Um, but there's this, this um, software type thing, maybe some of you guys that are more versed in this know about, that Amazon developed um, called Banditos. And so what it does is you can write a headline to go out on to whatever news story that you want online, right? And what you can do is you can write two headlines for the same story, and then whichever one generates more clicks automatically begins to push itself out across the different platforms and diminish the other one. So that what happens is whichever one is the more polarizing kind of headline to be written, which drives clicks, which drives the, the whole piece right there, right? So then what, what is it, by the time any of us see it, what do you see? The most polarizing headlines there are because it's, it's this nasty cycle, right? Um, now, Facebook has algorithms that do the same thing, that instead of changing the actual headline on the article, they change your feed to show you things that you think you will either wildly agree with or wildly disagree with. So the percentages of you seeing a story that is fair and moderate reporting towards a person or an idea that you disagree with on Facebook is slim to none. And the odds that you'll see a story that gives you negative press on some, an idea or a person that you really like is also very slim. So the, the whole thing is, it's wired to make all of us fail um, and do very, very poorly here. And the scary part about it is this. Here we're talking about headlines and which ones you see but the logical next piece is it just begins to be even more and more, not headlines, not what you see, but actually what's even written. Um, so th that's the technological piece that contributes to where we are. Um, and so, so it's a mess, right? It's a mess. Um, we lack a lot of times, I think, real belonging, real community. And so we, because we don't really belong somewhere, we don't really have relationships, it's just a lot easier to find somebody else to hate. And we kind of gain this sense of us. Oh yeah, you hate the Patriots? Good, me too. And it's easier to have that than actual real belonging. Um, and so, again, the Colts Patriots thing, you see that, and it's like, oh yeah, we can laugh about that. But you know what? how that hits a lot more closely home here is when we say, oh, can you believe they would go to that church? I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I hear that. They would go to that church? Like, whoa, 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 pause. Like, if they're not preaching the gospel, that's a problem. And let's talk about that. But pastorally, that, that's one of the reasons that I, I have lunch a lot of times with other guys in our area, other pastors in our area, that I want to know what you guys are doing. How can I pray for you? Tell me how you approach these issues. And over time, it's pretty easy to see, yep, this is a guy where if God is calling some perhaps to a different church, I can say, the Lord bless you and go and be there. I listen to their preaching. And 
And then if there's a spot where I say, eh, I don't think this would be a good thing, I can say that with a, an informed and a reasonable perspective. Because I know that that's within, like, as church people, that's how we tend to operate, right? Ben Sass, let me read a, um, a section from his book here that kind of talks about this. He says, our isolation has deprived us of healthy local tribes with whom we share values and goals and ways of life that uplift us. And so we fall into anti-tribes, defined by what we're against rather than what we're for. It's a sorry substitute for real belonging, but it's better than nothing. We might not have much in the way of community, but at least we aren't as ludicrous as those sanctimonious liberals on MSNBC or as absurd as those blowhard conservatives on Fox. There's something comforting in joining people of a similar mindset, a we, to denounce, quote, them. No one wants to sit alone. And so liberals and conservatives no longer believe the same things. We don't understand how our opponents believe what they believe. And we soothe our lonely souls with the balm of contempt. Of course, where there is demand, supply will emerge. And it turns out that contempt is big business. That's where we're at. And so one of the things that we'll unpack today and the rest of the class is nowhere in there towards a solution does he talk about you need to know four better arguments for the resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> now you may need to know that, but if, that, if you're thinking of that as the starting place, then you're wrong, right? We've got to go back and we've got to work towards that. Um, what can easily happen to us here? is we can begin to come to an angry response where it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they would do this to us. How could, whatever news agency, how could they say that? Or maybe a selfish response where we feel like we're being slighted. But what I would argue it needs to produce in us is a response of compassion. Just think about somebody who's living in this world and doesn't quite recognize everything that's going on as far as what's being pushed to you in the news. And in every time you go online, how in the world are they supposed to see a better way forward? We talk about all the time here growing through relationships. All the time we talk about that. I've had friends of mine say, yeah, everybody at work tells me that I have like all these graduation open houses to go to and all these funerals I'm always going to and all these weddings I'm going to. Like, how did all this happen? Because you have genuine community, real relationships. But without that, how in the world are we supposed to cope with this polarizing age? So instead of looking out and being upset and angry, like, oh my gosh, can you believe what that guy said about the Bible? Like, well, what would you expect him to believe? Look at the world he lives in. Look at all of his inputs that he didn't choose that she didn't choose, would you expect anything different? It's not their fault, right? Let me show you a quick, quick video here. It's um, kind of further illustrates the point. This is from one of my professors that I had um, who kind of shows up on some major news networks and um, I think you'll find it interesting. Asking if 
I would come on a show to discuss the issue of same-sex marriage. Well, I was biking at 2 o'clock, and they wanted me in L.A. at 5, so I couldn't make it on time. But interestingly enough, I said, hey, if you ever have any other opportunities in the future, let me know, I'd be happy to come on. I get a call back three hours later at 5.20, asking me to be on the show at 6.20. But the issue was going to be the transgender issue about Caitlyn Jenner. So I hesitate a little bit, but, but decided, sure, I'll do it. So the guy asks me what my position is. This is the producer for the show. And I said, well, my position is that this is a complicated issue. We need to have compassion. We need to follow the science. And we need to make sure we settle this issue carefully. He pauses, looks at me, and says, you know, you're much too compassionate. My director will get upset if I have you call into this show. And it turns out that he had called the Southern Baptists, and then they had recommended me because they wanted somebody who would basically say, we think this is wrong, this is sinful, and they're going to hell. And I said, if that's the person you're looking for, that's not going to be me. So I hope the phone and my son and I are watching the show, interested to see who actually calls in. Well, the show an hour later is on, and they have somebody call in, and guess who it was? It was somebody from churchmilitant.com. In other words, this tells me that news is not about trying to really solve issues, not about having genuine debate. It's about ratings. It's about getting people to say provocative things. That's what it gets to. So I love CNN. I love Fox News. I love watching MSNBC. But when you watch it, realize much more is going on than just delivering the news. So the point is this. You can get mad at your friend who watches CNN and sees the, the Christian from Church Militant or Christian Militant or whatever that was dot com and gives this horrible representation of Christianity. Like, why in the world? How can they say that about me? Well, it's pretty much the plainest thing in the world why they would say that. Because every time they turn the TV on, the representation they see of you, whether it's true or not, it's, it is what they see. Right? So when it comes to my conversation with a friend at work, how would I expect anything different? I am responsible to show them a better way forward. Right? Jesus kind of, I think, models how to respond in these ways. Right before he gets to all the, um, basically his tirade on the scribes and the Pharisees. In Matthew, like, 23, 24, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he just kind of goes over and over and over. And it's, I mean, he's kind of, he's bringing the thunder, right? Right before that, right before he lays into them, Listen to what he says in Matthew 23. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you hear the tone there? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wish... Oh, I wanted you to... He, it's, it's breaking his heart. He's not an angry tyrant going through, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Right? It's a completely different tenor you hear when you look at where he's at. It's a response of compassion that we must have. Okay? That's the first thing. So we start to look at the problem. I haven't yet begun to really get at the underlying pieces culturally. All I've done is just show you a few symptoms, a few ways the liberals do it, a few ways the conservatives do it, and say, okay, these are things you all already knew. 
but it's pretty obvious to see where compassion needs to be our response. Before we move into the next piece, I want to jump into a quick discussion bit with you here. And here's your question, just with the people at your table. Can you remember a time when you dismissed another viewpoint only to later change your mind? What led to your change of mind? People at your table, time when you dismissed another viewpoint, you later came back and changed your mind. What was it that caused you to change your mind? You got two minutes, go. One of the themes I heard there, um, just I kind of listened to a couple of the groups, was that generally speaking, our changing our mind was a gradual process. Heard Mark say that and a couple others as well. And, and usually it's not because I got a 27 point wonderfully presented, logically airtight argument. There's generally other cultural factors at play that move my thinking. And so when I think about how I change my mind, I gotta understand other people are probably gonna change their mind in a pretty similar way, right? And so when I think about what is it, what's that gonna look like going forward, we're just starting to kind of lay the foundation for perhaps a different approach where you don't necessarily have to have the perfect 90 second elevator speech it's a, it's a much more comprehensive, in some ways harder, in some ways easier kind of, um, kind of thing we're after here. That's the problem. That was the first thing we were going to walk through today is looking at the polarizing nature of our world. Second thing is getting towards the solution. All right, what is the solution? Everybody now, Sunday school answer. The solution is Jesus. <laughs> Very good. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> Now, in all seriousness, we're going to say Jesus is the answer. Um, because he was full of grace and truth. That's what you're asking. How do we be full of grace, full of truth at the same time without being a polarizing jerk? Right? How do I call things what they are without being an enabler? You know, back and forth, that whole tension that we wrestle with. And the other reason that we'll say that is because the problem we identified is a root human heart issue, not an iPhone issue. And the only place where you're going to find true transformation is in Jesus, right? Um, and so we'll talk about it in three different ways. We'll talk about our mission, our method, and our message. Uh, we may not get through all three of those today, and if not, that's okay with me. We'll just pick back up where we left off next week. Um, the mission, the method, the message. Um, and so we're going to hop back into a quick uh, quick discussion period with you here. We talk about the mission. This was the first objective for the course state the mission of the church. That's what, I'm, what I want us to be able to articulate. So in one sentence, what is the mission of the church? I'll give you a little bit less. I'll give you 90 seconds this time in your groups. Work for one sentence. What is the mission of the church? Go. Yeah, it's a, her disciple. Yeah, 
That was my sin there, that was my your answer works better probably. about 30 seconds. Yeah. Making the cycles, it's kind of all tough because you can't have you sitting and you know making cycles you're baptizing and taking part in communion, so it kind of covers a lot of things. Wow, you guys are all stars. You wrapped it up in less than 90 seconds. <laughs> Solved the whole whole Rubik's Cube there. Um, what did we come up with? What's the mission of the church? Glorify the Lord. To glorify the Lord? To go and make disciples. Go and make disciples? I see Scott pointing at the different mission statements around. <laughs> That's the mission of our church. That's what we came up with. I mean, we somebody did the work for us. <laughs> don't work harder work smarter that's good Andy basically a gigantic billboard it glorifies the Lord and it also sends people to something yep other thoughts what is the mission of the church um, we're to model Christ in sharing truth and compassion to others as we wait for his return that's good yeah um, if you're looking for a passage, you know, so I guess before we go to a passage, this can be a little bit tough because what's the mission of the church? Well, is it to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit the widows and orphans in their distress? Is it to preach the gospel? Is it to evangelize the nations? Is it to, there's all these good things. Like, yeah, we're supposed to be doing that, but is that the mission that we were given? Um, so I would probably just turn us back to Matthew 28 and look at Jesus' last words. So if we say, if what is the solution? We say Jesus at every front, Jesus for the mission, Jesus for the method, Jesus for the message. What's the mission he left us with right before he left? Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So it's interesting if you, if you just break it down. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That implies they get converted, right? Now, the, the, just a complete aside on that. In a Christian school kind of world, sometimes you hear, hey, are you an evangelism school or a discipleship school? It's an odd juxtaposition because Jesus puts them in the exact, no, it is the same thing. You disciple people into conversion, and then baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach them to observe, teach them to obey. Show them what sanctification looks like. Help them to be more like Jesus. All that I've commanded you, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And if you would pick this up and run with it and how the disciples carried it out, it meant go plant a bunch of churches and help people get into churches and help those churches to grow because that's going to be the most effective way to see more and more and more disciples made. Okay, so that, that, that's our mission. Make disciples um, wherever we're going, right? Um, where do we want to go next with that? I'm watching the clock here. Let's just leave it at that. It's pretty simple. Make disciples. That's our, that's our mission. Now, what's our method? I want to spend some time and camp out here. The method, again, the solution comes from Jesus, okay? And so I want to say the method is this, incarnational ministry. 
that's in your syllabus I talked about that. Um, what do we mean by that? Well, let's look at a few passage that, passages that talk about it and just kind of as a, as a backdrop. What is the incarnation? Jesus came to earth and became like us. Okay, now what's the method to make disciples go to people and become like them? Now, there are ways that goes way off the rails, right? So let's, let's, let's assume the best and most charitable understandings here. Um, let me show you a few passages. Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise took part in the same things. He became like you, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Because he feels what you feel, he can help you. Do you feel... What the, the people you're trying to help, do you feel what they feel? Or, when you see this thing take place, do you feel this kind of just welling up, blood pressure rising? You're like, I don't, whether you like it or not, you understand, if you're not feeling what they're feeling, it's going to be tough to help them and tough to reach them. Let's keep going. Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Right? He's there with you. Right? Um, John 20, 21. Now, th this is a fascinating one. Because we hear that, I, maybe we don't. I'm used to hearing this all the time. It's like, hey, everybody is sent. Like, quit waiting for your call to the mission field. God, you already have it. Right? It's right here. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. You've already been sent. Quit waiting for you know, your Cheerios to spell it out in the morning or J.D. Greer at the conference we're at he said he says I, I've been staring at my cheers for a long time and all they ever say is ooh you know but, but you've already been sent but the fascinating thing about this John 20 this is post resurrection Jesus shows up to the disciples who are locked in a room scared out of their minds because they live in a pretty polarizing world a pretty scary world out there they're saying oh my gosh can we even go out in the world can we even go out there can we even be part of that at all he said, hey, guys, the Father sent me into this crazy world, and I'm sending you in the same way. Get out. <laughs> Interesting when we look at the context there. Um, Paul says a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 9. I've become all things to all people that all mean, by all means, I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. 1 Peter 3 speaks a little bit differently, but it's a similar concept. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now the gentleness part is, is somewhat easy to talk about. It's like, hey, don't be yelling at people and don't be calling them names and like all of that piece. But the respect part, I think, is one that often gets undersold in the sense of if I just have a respectful tone that counts and I think truly having a respectful approach there goes way beyond that 
Um, we can spend some more time diving into that. Um, now, the thing is this. Incarnational ministry is something that religious people tend to hate. They tend to hate it for a lot of reasons. Um, it's things that you get labeled as a compromiser pretty quick. Um, just listen to Matthew eleven nineteen. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You hang out with the wrong people. You're going and being like them too much. Right? There are um, at least eight times in the New Testament where Jesus is attacked for hanging out with the wrong people. Right? And so this idea of going and getting out of the holy huddle, getting out of the four walls of the church, getting out of like your friends from church's house for the small group, and actually going and being with people that look completely different and believe completely different is not something that's generally smiled upon by religious people. That's just historically, that, that's how it's been. Um, and so I want to suggest to us uh, five keys to incarnational ministry that will help to frame in, like, what exactly are we talking about here? Um, because in fairness to that term, I don't know if maybe you're aware of this, maybe you're not, that term became really popular maybe 15 years ago. Um, and there are some ways that it really did go off the rails, and it was the gospel becomes as long as I'm going and being homeless and serving meals and just being the hands and feet of Jesus, then I'm being Jesus to these people. And, you know, that whole Francis of Assisi quote that he probably never said, but even if he did, it would still be garbage. <laughs> you may be, uh, uh, it makes me so angry to think about that I've forgotten it. Uh, yeah, preach the gospel, always use words when necessary. You're not going to find any words. <coughs> Nobody's getting saved from watching you give out a meal at a homeless shelter. Now, you should go give out a lot of meals at homeless shelters. Don't get me wrong. But that's, that's not what Romans 10 says at all. How are they to believe unless they hear? How are they here unless someone preaches? How is someone to preach unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who take the good news? Right? Five keys to incarnational ministry. So we can clearly define, hey, here's what we're talking about. Here's what we're after. Number one, enter their world. Enter their world. Okay, I've got three little girls. Never in my wildest dreams did I think I would be excited about ballet and grand jetés and arabesques and pirouettes and the glissage and first position and second position and what, you know, different kinds of leotards. And, like, never in my wildest dreams did I think I'd be excited about that as a 32-year-old man. You knew it was coming for me, didn't you, Jeff? Been there, done that. Yeah. <laughs> But because I love my daughters, I enter their world. And I read Angelina Ballerina to them, and we watch princess movies all the time. I enter their world, right? Um, and I'm not saying it's wrong. If, you got, if you're a, a football fanatic, like, yeah, go read the football fanatics. Like, there's nothing wrong with that either. But are you actually entering someone's world, or are you just waiting for them to come to the next B2B, come to, for them to come to the next fall festival, that for them to come to your next thing? That's not entering their world. That's waiting for them to enter your world. Right? Now, the key question here, key question is this. Does this cause me to compromise my personal holiness or my Christian witness? Because this one gets crazy sticky. They can be crazy sticky because you start asking questions like, can I go to that wedding? Like, am I, do I, 
does entering the world, should I do that? Um, you know, some of our friends, Christy and I have talked about this, others that work in the school system. How does it work with transgender students and how I talk to them? Do I use, which name do I use? And how much am I supposed to enter their world in that regard? Um, you know, oh, the boys are going out to watch, you know, the Colts playoff game. Are we allowed to go to that bar? Are we allowed to go to that strip club? Like, was entering their world? The questions get sticky here, right? And so the key question is, does this cause me to compromise my personal holiness or Christian witness? Those are always complicated questions. Maybe some of them we can get to a little bit later. Um, but it, it's really hard. I'll just leave it at that for right now. The second key to incarnational ministry is open your home. Open your home. This one can kind of overlap with the, um, with the other one. But the key question that it forces you to ask here is, am I living a distinctively Christian life? Am I living a distinctively Christian life? So I've got a friend, a uh, pastor friend up in Geist. Actually, so this, is, this is really cool. A, um, a church that Bethesda planted in the 90s uh, went through a rough patch, almost, um, leave that in a different conversation, um, and it's had a revitalization of sound theology and evangelism, and my friend Kevin is one of the pastors there, and so one of the things that Kevin does is every night at dinner, they read at least one verse from the Bible with their family, and then everybody has to either ask a comment or, or ask a question or make a comment about the verse, and so what happens is they have people in all the time that are not believers, and it's, hey, one of the things we do at dinner is, you know, obviously we eat, and then we just read a verse, and then we just make a comment or ask a question about it, and then we play games. I think it's the th th eat Bible games. They do it every single time, and so when people come in, they're not beating them over the head with, hey, you need to, you know, believe John 3.16, or else you're going to hell, and go on. Hey, this is one of the rhythms of our life. We do this every time, and then we're going to go play Ticket to Ride. But if I'm not living a distinctively Christian life, I can't invite people in and have them see distinctively Christian rhythms, right? One of the books in the recommended reading is this. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. We're taking all of our adult Sunday school teachers through it right now, as well as all of our deacons this year. Uh, it's by Rosaria Butterfield. Does anybody know Rosaria's story? Yes. Yes. Amazing story. Yes. Um, and it's worth telling, and we're just going to have to push some of our content back to next week. So Rosaria was a professor in uh, liberal feminist studies at Syracuse University and a very active member in the LGBTQ community. She wrote an op-ed for the Syracuse paper, um, and I forget what the topic of it was now, but some politically charged issue. And she said at her desk, she had two stacks, one for fan mail, one for hate mail, and both were enormous. And you just kind of, you know what each letter is going to say, like based on the first four words in it, and you just kind of <laughs> toss it in that one. Um, and one day she got this one letter from a guy that she didn't know what to do with. Because it said, hey, um, Dr. Butterfield, I read your piece. I thought it was really fascinating. Um, you know, there were some conclusions that you had reached there, and I understand in 500 words you can't really give a full-out argument for them. Here were a couple that I noticed. I was just interested in kind of hearing your thoughts on how you came to some of these conclusions, um, because it's, it's good writing. Um, obviously, you've thought through these things a lot, um, but I'd be interested to hear 
you know, how, how did you come to some of these conclusions? And she said it just ate at her because it was from a Presbyterian pastor in town. Uh-huh. And she didn't know what to, does that, does that go in fan mail? Because they like that I'm a good writer and I've thought through things. Does it go in hate mail because they disagree with, and so she just set it right next to her keyboard and just sat there for a week. And in her words, every time she said it, she just ate at her, like, I, I don't know what to do with this. And eventually she calls the guy, talk on the phone. She was working on a book about how crazy the religious right was. So she said, I'll use this guy as a, uh, a research project, basically. The pastor invites her over for dinner. One of the rhythms of their family is they sing a hymn, and then they pray, and then they eat. And so they sit around the table. They invite Rosaria, and of course she shows up. They sing their hymn. They pray. They eat. They don't invite her to church. They don't share the gospel with her. They just welcome her into their home. And three years later, she ends up converting. Amazing story. Um, and so the point is, am I living a distinctively Christian life? Well, if you, you can open your home, that's great. But if there's nothing distinctively Christian happening on the inside, that's a nice gesture. But it's not necessarily going to do that much as far as giving the eternal hope that these people need. Right? And so open your home. Key question, am I living a distinctively Christian life? I did skip over something at Enter Their World I wanted to talk about. Um, I remember Pastor Chris telling me a story um, about an opportunity he had in Los Angeles. His next door neighbors were, uh, it was a gay couple. And so it, it raised some interesting questions as far as we're going, we're hanging out with them, we're spending time with them. They're being, they're inviting us over to their house. They had a birthday party. They invite them over and we're talking, okay, how do we explain to our kids? Like when we're celebrating, like if they're particularly affectionate, like our kids are three, like, are they going to say something crazy? Like I would be concerned about my kids saying something that's really embarrassing. Like, like these are difficult questions, right? They end up going to the birthday party. They got a pool in the back. They're hanging out. Um, He's drinking a beer. And the guy looks at him and says, look, this makes no sense. You're a pastor. I'm gay. We're swimming around in a pool on a Saturday afternoon drinking a beer together. Can you explain what this Jesus is like? Whoa. Look, enter their world. There's a perception about you out there. Whether it's true or not is kind of beside the point. Right? You've got to enter people's worlds. And as you do... All of a sudden, you can be that, that solvent that goes in and starts to heal wounds. And by the grace of God, we hope to see opportunities come out of it. But you got to love people a lot to be able to enter their world and leave your own, which is not comfortable. It's two keys to incarnational ministry. Let's keep moving on. The third one, listen to learn. David Augsburg powerfully said, Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Let me say that again. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Just think about a time when somebody sat down and you feel like they actually just listened to you and how loved you felt when they would actually listen. Not listen to respond, not listen to fix it, listen to learn and to hear where they're at. Key question, are you thinking of a rebuttal 
or a great follow-up question? If you're thinking of a rebuttal of how you said this and I can turn it this way, no, that's not listening to learn. If you're thinking, hmm, how can I ask a great question about what you just said that helps me understand where you're at more? That's listening to learn. Now, part of the difficulty here is that you can't assume that you know everything about their position. Okay, so there, there's another minister in the area at a uh, very liberal church I had coffee with a couple of years ago. They did a, um, that the, uh, what's that restaurant next to, to Kroger's? Green Street, Green Street. whatever Station. that place is. They did, w- w- late night they did a, um, a theology on tap on transgender issues which intrigued me in general, especially coming from the most liberal church in Brownsburg. And so I said, man, let's go grab Starbucks. I want to hear what you guys talked about. Um, we went, we had an interesting conversation. I was meeting with a different pastor in Brownsburg, m- much more conservative guy. And we're kind of talking about the, the trans issues. It's been a pretty hot topic in Brownsburg, right? And I said, yeah, I was having, having coffee with so-and-so, and here's what he, he said about this. And, and the guy looked at me and said, well, of course he said that. I could have told you that a long time ago. Like, I'd never talked to him. And he may have thought he knew what his position was, but don't assume you know. Just don't. Listen to learn. Let them explain it for themselves. Okay? This leads into number four. Define with charity. Define with charity. Tim Keller would say it this way. Never attribute an opinion to your opponents that they themselves do not own. Never attribute an opinion to their opponents that they would not own themselves. Okay, if they wouldn't say it that way, you don't say it that way. If that's not how they would frame their position, you don't frame their position that way. Now, you've got all the liberty in the world to say, okay, here's how they would say it. They would say, boom, boom, boom. Now, I would disagree at this point, and I think it's really more of this. Sure, that's fine. But don't define it in a way they wouldn't. Define it with charity. Okay? Another aspect of this is you need to represent the strongest version of your opponent's viewpoint. The strongest version. Are there really stupid reasons that Christians have for believing the Bible? Yes, they're out there. I've heard a lot of them. Does that mean that believing the Bible is stupid? No, you would feel terrible if somebody looked at you and said, oh yeah, the only reason you believe the Bible is for fill-in-the-blank dumb reason. Well, somebody holds that view. But you would say, man, wouldn't you, like, wouldn't you at least think maybe there's some good reasons for this? You would want to be treated the same way. Why wouldn't you treat somebody else the same way? Define with charity. Key question. Would your friend state his or her position like you did? Would your friend state his or her position like you did? Now, I'll tell you how I messed this one up. So at, at that same coffee meeting, right, I'm, um, I'm trying to be as gentle and as respectful as I can and frame my questions really carefully, and sometimes I'm getting the answers I expect and sometimes I'm not. And um, at one point I said to them, well, what would keep somebody from basically changing their gender this day to the next day, back and forth, you know, just however it goes. I knew statistically that's like nobody. 
that's a a slippery slope that maybe it happens at some point in time, maybe it doesn't, but it's statistically it's less like nobody. And I knew that, and I just kind of let the the right wing conservatism in me kind of flow out. And immediately you just saw the look on their face change, walls go up, back off, they're done. Like, well, I don't think anybody, nobody I know is doing that. I, I'm doing a lot of counseling with kids that are struggling with transgenderism in Brownsburg right now. I had an opportunity and I didn't define and ask that question with charity on where I knew things were at. And it, there's an opportunity that was lost. Um, it's difficult to do that because we always have the lens of saying, well, you're just at it for this. Well, you're just at it for this. And we're assuming all kinds of motives there, right? Number five, play the long game. Play the long game. Now, if there's a fair amount of married people in here, uh, and I think you all understand this, the person is always more important than the point, right? The person is more important than the point. And we've all had times when we thought we had to be right and we had to get the point across. And if not, then, you know, we just, we just couldn't do this. And then we all got smarter and wiser and realized that we were dumb at that point in time and that the person was more important than the point. This one you do have to balance with urgency. You have to balance with urgency. Because what can quickly happen here is you say, oh, I'm just into relational evangelism and I want to build trust in people because they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And... You know, we got to have them into our house five times and have them over to four different back to Bethlehems and two fall festivals. And maybe at that point, it'll be okay to share the gospel. Eternity's at stake. Their soul matters, right? So you got to balance this with, with, um, with the urgency of hell. So the key question in light of that is this. Am I afraid of someone's response to the gospel or their rejection of me? Is that why I say I'm playing the long game? Deep down, we know we've all got different bents here, right? Some of us are just super relational and we know that we're just going to continue to connect and it's going to be tough for us to get to asking direct questions. Others of us are kind of more confrontational and combative, and you're like, man, you want to have a throwdown? Let's have a throwdown right now. Let's get this debate on. Come on, let's go. Know yourself. Know your bent. Which way you're going to lean. And if it's, hey, I need to have more urgency, then have more urgency. And if you need to have more patience in, in the long game, then have that. I'll give you another quote from Ben Sass here on this, this kind of viewpoint. It says, warriors view the present moment as a make or break for all time, but neighbors do not. Neighbors see today's conversation not as the last discussion we'll ever have, but as a precursor to tomorrow's. We can and we will visit again. We can continue talking and listening. We can be open to future persuasion and to being persuaded. We need not win everything by force, and we need not win everything right now. Hey, Dave. Um, Something you can table if you want. So if you tell somebody there's consequences to your actions, yep. Uh, would that fall under going against defining defined charity? Would that be a little too harsh? Or um, so when you're telling somebody about what they're doing, you know, consequences to your actions. Um, yes, it's a good question. I when I say define with charity, I'm thinking about how I talk about somebody else's position. Oh, I see. Right. So if if. Um, it may not be quite lined up. Take, take the wall. The wall works great on this one. 
right? There's a million ways that you can define a conservative's reason for wanting a wall there in the wrong ways. And there's a million ways you can define a liberal's reason for not wanting it there in the wrong ways. Assume the best. Why, why would you think this is best that we do or don't have this is what I'm getting at there. That is a, a good question on towards playing the long game. Um, and it's kind of what I wanted to segue into. So I'll say this and we'll finish here. Um, when we look at what Senator Sass said, we think about playing the long game. What that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean, is that I'm not asking really good questions that have eternal implications. It doesn't mean I'm playing the long game and like, hey, in a year and a half, we can talk about the Bible. That's not what that means. Okay, what I mean by that is I don't have to push you and pressure you and prod you and like, hey, we got to go to dance class. We got to go. We got to go. Well, you haven't prayed the Romans road yet. What happens if you get in a car crash on your way there? Like if you don't pray right now, like, bro, let me go to dance class with my kids. Right. I understand those realities. They could get in a car crash and they could die on the way. Right. But that doesn't give me the, the license to be manipulative and demanding and pushy in that way. And what we tend to do is we tend to hear, don't play the long, or do play the long game as, hey, I'm going to wait a long time to start getting into some meaty conversations. That's not what I mean at all. I mean, let's have the conversation. Like, Steve, I know you've had a lot of conversations with your neighbor, the guy you think is a deist. Right? And you guys talk about a lot of weighty stuff. You're, you're doing a great job at that. But it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, lock him out of his house until he prays the prayer for you. <laughs> That's what really I'm saying. consolation. I took him over to his lawyer the other day. That sounds like an interesting story. <laughs> <laughs> um, 7.30. So we didn't quite get through everything today. You got to enter people's world. If you open your home, you're going to have opportunities. If you listen to learn, walls will come down. If you define with charity, people will see they can trust you. And if you play the long game, you're going to start to show them a different version of what Christianity is than what CNN tells them is out there. People are longing for something better. Everybody looks out at the world and says, this place is super broke. This is not, whatever we're doing, it isn't working. Right? We have the opportunity to show people a better way. And more importantly than showing them a better way, telling them the better way. Right? So I look forward to next week continuing to jump into that. We'll pick up with the message that we're supposed to deliver and what that looks like. And that starts to get into, hey, how do I explain these things in a clear and succinct way? I'm hoping to get... It's unfortunate that we leave off on play the long game and we don't get to the message. Like that's, It was intentionally designed not to be that way. Um, but that's all right. We'll c- pick up there next week. Let me pray. Um, I'm going to post two articles on the group um, in the hub. A couple things to look at um, that we talked about today that may be helpful. Um, and we'll go from there. God, thanks for this group, this opportunity we have um, to think about reaching this world with the gospel, this polarizing world. Help us to be salt and light that brings people together. Help us to understand the urgency of the situation. May it push us to love in profound ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.